The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. This week, we're continuing in our series called Roots, and what we're doing is exploring the core values of Love City Church. Uh, And the core value that we're going to discuss this week is so important that if your life is not marked by it, you can go from God fighting for you to God fighting against you. And I'm not sure about all of you, but I really can't afford to have the Lord fight against me because this life can be hard enough even when he's for me. That was a good spot for you to amen right there. There you go. I'm a coach. I'm going to teach you where those belong. That way you know where to insert them, okay? It's good. We, we struggle a little bit with that. We're going to get better, Love City. Okay. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to uh, James chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 6. Our fifth core value here at Love City is that we want to live in, in the same humility that was exemplified by Jesus. And we're about, we're about to read here some of why uh, this, uh, being humility, that it, it made the list for us as a core value. Uh, and I've explained in the past that our core values are kind of a blueprint for how we do things. They're the DNA that inform what it is we're going to be as a church, what it is we do. Uh, our core values, are they, they inform kind of the path we take and what we emphasize. And so these are the things that uh, we think the scriptures hold high and that Jesus thinks are important. And so uh, we're just going to follow suit. Um, so our fifth core value is that we want to have the same humility as exemplified by Jesus And uh, we're going to read here in James why that's a big deal, why that made the list for us. Uh, And we're going to see that humility is something that God clearly takes very seriously. Um, I want to clear up some common confusion before we go much farther because I think it'll help the rest of our time together in the Word to be more fruitful. Um, Humility is not so much about thinking less of yourself. It's really about thinking more of God and of others. Do you see that distinction? Oftentimes we think of humility as uh, the humble guy will, will stand there and you know, grovel and say, I'm a slug, I'm a worm, I'm the worst. You know? um, and that's probably good for you to say every once in a while. But that's really not the main point. The main point of humility is a perspective shift, not so much about yourself. It's, really, it's not so much about focusing on how bad you are. It's about just focusing on you less and seeing other people as more valuable and God as the ultimate good. Uh, we're going to read James 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 together, and we'll talk about that a bit. Starting in verse 6, it says, but he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Uh, Wow. This makes me want to pay really close attention to whether or not I'm walking in humility. Um, I just want to ask you a question, and and sometimes I know it sneaks up on you, but I'm looking for you to actually answer this audibly, as scary as that is in a group of people, but it's really easy, I promise. You can get this one. If God, if you and God are in opposition with one another, who's going to win? There you go. That was, see, I give you easy ones. That way, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going from there, get a little harder, build up your confidence. Uh, that's right, God. How many times? Every single time, God's going to win. 
I can't afford to be in opposition to the guy that said, let there be light, and there was light. The one that simply spoke all of creation into existence. I don't even stand a chance against him, and so I don't want to ever find myself in the unfortunate position to be in opposition with that guy. uh, King of glory, God of all, creator, right? That's... My resume is not good enough to stand in that place. Uh, And the reality is I need his grace ever more each day. Uh, And it says that he gives that to the humble man. Uh, And it's only by his empowering grace that I can avoid the pitfalls of pride to begin with. It's all by his grace and by his strength. Um, Some of you have been taught falsely that God would never oppose anybody uh, because God is just an ever-jovial, slightly more powerful Santa Claus that's anxiously awaiting your faith wish list so he can fulfill it? That's not true. Uh, That's not true. It's clear from this and other scriptures that God indeed will oppose the proud, uh, even if those are his children. And when God opposes anybody, it doesn't go good for him. You see that? That's a pretty simple principle. (laughs) I don't want to be on team opposition to God, because that's the losing team Every day. Uh, Another scriptural example, and I know the Tower of Babel came up last week, and some of you might be thinking, does this guy have a weird fixation on the Tower of Babel? No, it just makes sense for both of these sermons. So there you go. Uh, But here's what happened at the Tower of Babel, in case you're not aware. If you go back towards the beginning, right after Noah and his family get off the boat, uh, they... They reproduce, uh, the world's population begins to grow, and uh, what God had told them to do was to fill the earth and multiply. Uh, Man, in in our general uh, sense of rebellion and stupidity, decided we had a better idea, and so uh, they all decided to settle in this one plane, and then they got together and started to uh, realize how awesome they were, and they thought, man, we need a a monument to our awesomeness, and so out of this flows the motive for building what is called the Tower of Babylon. So these guys start to build this tower, and um, we see God in the scriptures say that uh, pretty much what he needs to do is go down and intervene in that because um, these guys are going to cause a lot of trouble for themselves if they continue. And so uh, he does that. He confuses their languages so that they can no longer really work together. He causes them to be in disunity through the uh, separation of their and and creating language barriers. So uh, what we see in that is um, not so much that God is mean, not so much that uh, God wanting his people to be humble instead of prideful is some type of control freak issue that he has. What it is is that God is smarter than us. God made us, and God knows that we're never going to be happy without him. And so every time as humans we tend towards this natural inclination we have to believe we can do it on our own, God will come, and he will oppose us when we get on that path because he loves us. And what he's trying to return us to is the path that leads to the most joy and the most fulfillment and eternity with him, which is to be humble and to lean heavy on his grace, right? And so he opposed those people, and you, and, and you could see that. And with, with only a surface-level understanding, um, you, you could think that, wow, why, it's, it's not fair. Why would God oppose anybody? Um, but it's always loving when God does it. Because God is love. Um, It's kind of like this. If somebody, let's say somebody was a really good salesman and they were able to come along and they they convinced you that these pills they were selling could make you fly. Uh, I mean, they'd have to be pretty good, but let's just say their story was so good. They had a YouTube video to go with it. Uh, You take these pills, you can fly. And so you buy these pills, you head to the tallest point you can find, you know, down the hatch, 
with some water and, and you're about to jump and, and let these flying pills do their thing, is it loving or unloving for somebody to come along and say, hey, hey, hey brother, sister, <laughs> let's rethink the flying pills? Is it loving or is it unloving? Right? It, it, I mean, because that's, that's the way most of our culture lives. That if I've decided something is for my best, who, how dare anybody, including God, come and stand in my way? I bought these pills, I saw the YouTube video, and by gosh, I'm going to fly and you're not going to stop me. Is that not the attitude we have sometimes? Now, let's, of course, flying pills is a ridiculous and overly exaggerated example, but we do this all the time with things like, I don't care what you said, God. I can, I can do this or that or the other thing. I can do this with this woman or this with this man. I don't need to, I don't need to heed uh, your warnings about uh, what, what holiness and purity will gain me and what uh, going against those things, how that will harm me. I don't need that. How dare you tell me something different than what I already have decided to believe? And the, and the list goes on and on, right? Um, and the sad thing is that we see, this, we see this tendency over and over. It's not like the tricks of the devil or the stupidity of our own um, natural inclinations is that new. We just seem to just repeat over and over the same problems. Um, and what you'll see is that pride always ultimately leads to a false belief that you don't need God. That's the ultimate end of pride, that you don't need God. We see this in the garden. That's what Satan came with. Not just uh, the, that that fruit was, it looked good, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. But what we see there is Satan saying, God didn't really say you would die. What, here's the thing. God's trying to hold back from you something good. What's going to happen is you're going to be like him. And if you're like him, do you need him? No, you don't. Pride. It, it sparked her imagination. I could be like God. Then I wouldn't have to be under God. And this is the motive of every sin. That pride is the motive of every sin. Every person that fights tooth and nail to try to rail against the God of the universe Drill all the way down deep into their motive. What they want is to rule themselves. Drill down deep into your own tendencies of sin. What you will find is a desire to rule yourself. Humility is the cure to this sickness. That's why it's important. That's why God makes a big deal about it. Pride is what led Satan to rebel, and it is the mother of all his other temptations. And because pride always brings blindness to the eyes and darkness to the heart, it is very loving of God to oppose those headed down its destructive path. Do you see that, dear one? Please, I need you to see that. I need you to see that if you're riding your bike towards a cliff because you think that's a good idea, God's sticking a stick in your spokes, even if that ends up a, a, a scratched up face and jacked up knees, it's still for your good. And it's loving. Do you see that? I need you to see that. In, in that moment, the, the crash of the bike stings, but if I were to look back and see, God stopped me because he loved me, and, and I look forward and see, oh man, that, that path would have led me to destruction. The problem is, oftentimes we are, we are so geared towards pride and insolence that all we do is stand up and shake our fist as if we're sure that what God has done or not done uh, was because of his insufficiency or some of our other lack in his character, and this can, it's never true. I would say that uh, it's a shame that Augustine wasn't around uh, to talk some sense into the guys at the Tower of Babel, 
uh, because the wisdom that he shares here is, is really so applicable. He says to, the, to, uh, to us in one of his writings, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. Do you plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? Lay first the foundation of humility. Uh, I could go on and on citing uh, scriptural references and stories that show that pride is destructive and humility is godly. Um, but I want to share with you uh, a personal example. Um, by the age of 21, I had started buying uh, real estate. I had a couple of partners, and um, we started buying rental real estate, and it, it went really well at first. Um, we had a plan that we were going to buy so many properties and then uh, hire a property manager, and that would allow me to step back and use that cash flow to focus all of my attention on ministry. And so it was a good plan, I think, with noble motives, um, uh, but Satan's sneaky. And if I'm honest with you, what started to happen in that process, 21, 22, 23 years old, um, we're buying a, a rental property every month and rehabbing it, and so on paper, net worth is going up. Um, it's kind of this deal. You, you see the shows on TLC and stuff. Like It seems like everybody and their brother wants to do something in real estate, and so there's like this prestige that goes with it. And so... Like on one occasion, I remember going to a, uh, a real estate investors conference in Florida, which really just ended up being a forum for people to sell things, but we didn't know that. So we went there thinking they would have some valuable information. And um, I remember sitting at a table with a bunch of other attendees and this thing, you know, we all got our name tags looking like dorks. And uh, I'm like 22 or 23, and I've got these guys, as you know, we start chatting or whatever. I've got lawyers and doctors and all these guys with so much money they don't know what to do with it, so they want to invest in real estate, looking at me with stars in their eyes because like, so often people want to invest in real estate, but they just like, they don't know how to get to the next step. And so I start telling them, well, I've got th these many properties and this such, this, and I, I'm laying out my story, and these guys are like eating out of my hand. Guys double my age, double my experience, and that was not good for me. I begin to feel pretty awesome about myself. I begin to think that I was one of those guys, you know, I mean, obviously, I was, I was a Christian, loved God, and gave him credit with my mouth, but I'm talking about what was going on in my heart. Is that okay? Because sometimes that's different. And so I started to get prideful. I started to feel like I was pretty awesome. I liked to tell people what I did. I liked to tell people how many properties I had. I liked to tell people what I was doing, the, the, the numbers on the checks, because that, that all went part and parcel with, with uh, that kind of community. And so... What ended up happening, though, got to the point where we had many rental properties, um, and then the financial crisis, so-called, in the beginning of 2008 hit, and uh, my whole house of cards got blown over <laughs> uh, because of varying market factors, the fact that market rents went down at the very same time that lenders quit lending and capital and credit got locked up. I ended up in this position where this little kingdom that I had built that made me feel so good turned into a prison. And very soon I was left with little to nothing. The ink was going red. And then I had to go back and uh, eat humble pie and sit across from all those lenders and try to figure out how they were not going to run me into the ground. And uh, here's what I want to say to you about it. I don't believe that God sovereignly brought on the financial crisis of 2008 to teach me a lesson about humility. However, I think he works all things to the good of those that love him 
even if those things aren't, even if what he works out isn't what we think we want. Does that make sense to you? I think he broke me, and that was good. It was good for me. Uh, it was embarrassing. It was hard. It was difficult. One of the most difficult things in my life, because in my mind, I was building something I was going to be able to hand to my kids. And so there's a bunch of emotional attachment to it. A lot of my identity was wrapped up in what I was doing. Who I was was part of that deal. And then that crumbled. And so I had to realize where my sin was at in many levels. My identity should have never been, t- never been tied to what I do. My identity is in Christ. So if today I'm a preacher and tomorrow I dig ditches, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I'm still with Jesus. My identity doesn't change right? Um, And I'm just telling you today, I'm thankful to God that I was brought low. I'm thankful to God that he stuck a stick in my spokes, that he did not let me, it was loving for him to not let me continue to think I was awesome because I would end up getting to the point, I believe, well, I would have thought I didn't need him. And that would have been the most tragic place I could have ever reached. Amen. Humility leads us out of the dangerous potential to be dissatisfied with God's goodness because we feel he didn't give us this thing we wanted or do that thing we asked him to. Humility leads you to pray like Jesus. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Because you genuinely think more of God's intelligence and his plan than your own. You see, to pray that prayer, God, your will be done, not mine, but yours. And for you to mean it, you have to truly and really believe he's smarter than you and he loves you more than you even love yourself. That his intentions are for you are better than anything you could conjure. Do you want that? Do you want his plan even if it meant pain? And even if that pain didn't eventually in this life lead to something that you would call good, but all it led to was his glory, you still want his plan? I'm telling you, I do. I don't care what it costs. The highest honor I could ever have is to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. What would I be if it were not for him anyways? <laughs> but a dead man with no hope, I'd be nothing. Because of him, I have the hope of eternity and thus everything. For that, I'm grateful. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 1. We should not seek only to walk in humility because we want to avoid the negative consequences of God's opposition. We should also seek to walk in humility because Jesus did. And because he did, we know that it's pleasing to the Father. We're going to read uh, Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 1 and read to verse 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also look out for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Woo! If your heart's been changed by the king, man, those last two verses should make a toe tap or something ought to happen. I'm telling you. Preaching myself happy. Okay. Here's what I want you to see that this does for us. This is a beautiful, um, this is the be- a beautiful gift from God to us in the form of a hammer. What he's doing here is he's leaving us zero loopholes because we see that what we are called to, he gives us the specifics. He says, do nothing out of empty conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but consider others to be more important than yourselves. And then he hits us with it. He hits us with, he he tightens it up so that there's no way we can wiggle out of it. He says, here's really what I want you to do. I want you to have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Because what did he do, dear ones? He was in, he he says he was uh, in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what he was willing to do was be lowered down to the form of a man, to become a bondservant, and then to go further than that, to end up knowing what this was going to cost him was to die the death of a common thief. Can you imagine that? Creator God, the one who, if anybody need not humble themselves, it's perfect, sinless, awesome Jesus, yet he does it. Not only because it was required to fulfill the plan of reconciliation and salvation for us, God's people, but so that he could set for us a precedent that we could never get away from. If he would consider you more important than himself and prove it by going to the cross, shedding his perfect blood on your behalf, then who do you get to think you're more important than? Here's my question, dear one. Are you more important than Jesus? It's very simple, not a trick. No. (laughs) Would all of history uh, have been changed much had one of us individually not come on the scene? Eh, maybe. (laughs) To those that love us, it could have been a bummer. Jesus has not been around since the beginning of time. Things were different. Like, like they never happened. (laughs) So, yes, he is infinitely more important than any of us. But how did he act? How did he think? What did he do? He acted as if that wasn't true. (laughs) He died in your place for your sins and, and, and functionally says in doing that, you are more important than me. And what that causes us to have to do to be, in order to walk in a manner worthy of the name of Christ, in order to be a disciple of his, in order to follow after him as we are called to do, we have to be humble. And we have to see others as more important than we are. And I know that sounds like a bummer because everything in you screams, get mine, self-preservation, me first, then maybe if there's something left, something for somebody else. But I just promise you, I promise you the way to joy, 
The way to hope, the way to real happiness is not in the indulging of every selfish thought that comes to your mind. It's in the pouring of yourself out for the better of others. I promise you, some of you know that this is true. Some of you spent much time wrapped up in our materialistic, uh, you know, joy comes in things culture, and, and then you begin to experience what happens when Christ changes your heart, and you care more about serving somebody else than somebody serving you, and you've experienced that pure, unadulterated joy of being a servant in the name of Christ, and you know, you know, there's nothing like it. There's nothing else like it. I've done really cool things in, in my life, and I'm just telling you, there's nothing like knowing that I'm being used of God to serve somebody, knowing that I'm being used of God to grab somebody's hands and look into their eyes and share with them for the first time the fact that they need not be hopeless, but that they can give themselves to Christ and have hope for eternity. To see dark eyes lighten with the hope of the gospel, I'm, I t- I'm telling you, you're not going to find, if you're looking for an experience, just, just give all of yourself to that end. I promise you, you won't top it. Of course, we don't go to do that for the sake of an experience. We go to do that because we're motivated by he that loved us first. Right? Right. Amen. Okay. We have to have the same mind that Christ Jesus did. Was Jesus humble? My God, he was humble. This isn't a word, but he was the humblest. Maybe it is. I don't know. Somebody check on it. Either way, you know what I'm saying. Because his greatness is unmatched, the fact that he took himself low, we, we, nobody can ever match that level of humility. The highest ever went the lowest possible. And so in that, he set a bar for us that we could never attain, but we should always chase towards. Right? Amen. We should seek to be humble because we cannot afford God's opposition. We should seek to be humble because Jesus was. And we should also understand that the gospel preached rightly will make men humble. The bad news, which is often omitted from our modern day gospel presentations, puts men and women in their proper place. One of humble reliance upon our all-powerful and gracious Father. This is what I mean when I say that. The gospel means good news, but it It makes little sense if not preceded by the bad news. If we don't say first, there's a need for the good news. And so here's the bad news said plainly. God made man perfect, put us in a garden, gave us one command. The sin of pride, the sin of a desire for self-rule led us to rebel against him. And from that point on, every single man and every single woman has been stained by sin. Here's why that's a really big deal. God is perfect. He's holy. There's no one like him. He's set apart. He's completely and totally perfect. And, and darkness and light, sin and perfection, they can't mix. There's several examples throughout the scriptures where God is compared to light. And if you study light, you understand that it, it is, it's a pure form of energy and it can't be mixed with anything. You cannot dilute it. And so it, it, that helps us understand what's going on there. We were We were separated from God because of that sin in a way that that could not be fixed unless perfection was again attained. And that's really bad news. That means all of us, every single one of us, none of us is perfect. None of us in and of ourselves are good enough to be with God for eternity. 
That's bad news, but it needs to be said because without it, man can think things like, I'm a lot better of a person than my neighbor. I hear them fighting with their wife, beating their kids. There's a pile of beer cans on their back porch. It looks like Mount Rushmore. I'm so much better than them. Surely, surely I'll make it in. I don't know about them, but I mean, I, I mean, I'd, I only yell at my kids a little bit. I haven't cussed in weeks, and um, I don't drink beer, so God probably loves me more, and I'm assuming I'm going to get in. Men can think like that. Men, women can think like that. They can, pride can come in and get them to think this, this incredible lie is true, that somehow their own righteousness is going to equal salvation. And here's the only reason we have any idea what God thinks about us, himself, or eternity is the word. And unfortunately, most people's information about what's going to happen in eternity comes from some other source. I don't know where. But you will find, sadly, the more you give yourself to having conversations where you're trying to sow gospel seeds and you start to ask people, what is it they believe about salvation? What is it they believe about eternity? How is it that somebody can... Can, can know that they'll be with God for eternity, uh, by and large, the answer I get is some form, some variable of, well, you got to be a good person. Most people believe. See, we, especially here at Love City, we hear the gospel week after week. It could be hard for us to believe that somebody even here in our culture doesn't understand the gospel. I'm telling you, way over 50% of people don't understand that it's not about what they do, it's about what Jesus did. And that's why we have to be on mission. That's why this isn't a joke. That's why every single week, whether I'm talking about humility, gratitude, loving people, whatever it is, somehow it's going to come back around and be woven into a call to you to care about the fact that people will go to hell without Christ. I need you to care about it, and I need you to do something about it. I need you, by God's grace, to be empowered to go into the places you go. I don't care where that is. If it's where you work, where you go to school, wherever you go, the store, the restaurant, look for opportunities everywhere you go to sow gospel seeds because eternity is a really long time, and this matters a lot. And it's a great privilege for us to carry this treasure of the gospel in us. We shouldn't act like it's a burden. It's a great joy. And so... The bad news is that sin separates from God, and all of us have sin. None of us are perfect. That's why the good news is so beautiful. The good news is that Jesus came, and he did what none of us could. He lived a perfect life. And then he was able to step in and pay the price. God sees fit for Jesus to be able to die in our place for our sins, take the punishment that all of us deserve, let him take that wrath, let him take that pain, let him take that punishment and count it somehow as justice done. And then let us partake of his righteousness. We never could have fixed it ourselves. And it is only through faith in the finished work of Christ that we will ever be reconciled to the God that loves us. That's the gospel. And he, here's, here's the great hope and here's the great joy, though. Jesus didn't stay dead. You see, death was conquered. It had, it couldn't, it had no claim to him. And so because Jesus conquered death first, we're going to follow in his wake. And we're going to be with him forever. That's beautiful. That's a great hope. That's a good message to preach. It's what we have. This is the jewel. This is the precious thing we have to offer others. And when, when it's preached rightly, when you're willing to tell somebody, when you've got the spine to tell them, you'll not reach God yourself. It is either going to do one of two things. It is going to incite in them a rising up of that pride and there will be anger. Or it's going to 
break them and make them humble. We can't control what people's reaction are, but we, we can't control whether or not we're willing to tell the truth. And sow those seeds that could lead to a heart being humbled and broken before God that he can take it and fix it and make it his. Amen. The gospel preached rightly makes men humble. I didn't intend on saying this, but I, I, I feel compelled to. The gospel preached wrongly will add to men's pride. Okay? I'm not going to get on a train and, and, and start bashing anybody else, and we are not by far here at Love City the only ones that do this right. I don't think that that would uh, smell conspicuously of pride, would it not? Um, that's not the case, but, but here's what I'm saying. There are a lot of things that fly under the banner of Christianity that is not the gospel preached rightly, and what it leads to is compounding pride in men. When the gospel is preached in some way, some, in some way where it makes it about you, when the gospel is preached in a way where it, it offers you things in trade so that you would be enticed to come as if, as if God owes you something. He owes you nothing. And if, it, if he did nothing else but die on the cross in your place for your sins and then promise... Here's the crazy thing. He did do more than that. He's promised to walk with us, not just make a way that we can be saved, but then to come and inhabit us by his Holy Spirit, to lead us, to guide us, to help us and heal us, to give us the power and the strength of his Holy Spirit through his grace to live this life with victory. He has promised us in addition to what he did at the cross, but if he did nothing but die in your place for your sins, he would still be worthy of you humbly bowing at his feet for all eternity. You believe that? What if, he, what, if he, what if there was no perks? What if, like many in the world right now are experiencing, it costs you something dearly to be a Christian? Where does that put you? What if it wasn't socially acceptable? What if actually what's been the past here in America is that you actually had a bit of a social benefit to call yourself a Christian? What if that goes away? You still on the team? You still got your Jesus jersey on? Or are you going to shrink back? Think about this. Being identified with Christ in some places in the world right now, it costs you something dearly. It could be your life and the life of your family. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to ask you. Look down in your heart. What's going on here? Are you a part of this thing because somebody you know is? Or do you really realize that you've been bought with a price? Precious blood, the highest price ever been paid for anything, that your life's not your own, no matter what that means. That's the call to you, dear one. But it's joyous no matter what. Here's the crazy thing. You go through these scriptures, and what it will tell you is no matter how high the cost gets for us to be associated with Christ, when you're in him, no matter how bad it gets, you can have joy. Doesn't it, isn't that what Romans 5 is about? It says that if you, will, if you will understand that tribulation is coming, but what that does is it gives you the opportunity to persevere by his grace. You persevere, and then what happens is character is built in you, and once you go through that process, you have hope that you didn't have before. That is Christianity. That's this process of sanctification we're walking through. That's what it looks like to run this race that Paul talks about. And so life, yes, with Jesus is going to be a series of overcoming tribulation, not by your own strength, not by your own grit, but by his grace and by his power. 
Then you get to point to him and show others, hey, look what he did. Hey, look what he did. I could never have fixed this. Look what he did. I would have never made it right here, but look what he did. You get to show him this thing isn't just a joke. This isn't some deal. This isn't a Ponzi scheme that some Jewish guys thought up a whole long time ago that this is real, that Jesus really is in the business of taking hearts of stone and making them hearts of flesh, that Jesus really does take broken dead people and make them living and full of hope and life. This is real, isn't it? It's real. It's real. I know it. I know how I used to be. I know how I used to think. I know what it used to feel like in this chest, what hopelessness was like. I don't feel that anymore. In the darkest moments, I have hope. (laughs) In the most difficult times, I have hope. And if you have nothing else, it's worth it. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Thank you, Jesus, that that's true. Augustine again said rightly, I think um, Augustine's work on humility as a virtue is some of the best uh, in all of church history. Um, I refer to him often when thinking of this subject. Uh, He said this, he said that humility is the foundation of all other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. You understand the implications of that? Without humility, any other virtue you may have would be a facade because its motive would not be right. Any other virtue you may have would lead to your own pride instead of the glorifying of the God who gave you that virtue. Humility is required for this whole thing to work. Thus, it's a core value here. Thus, it's something that will be woven in and through much of what we talk about. And please don't be surprised as we continue on through the word that these core values don't come up no matter what we're talking about. Whether we're taking a a book of the Bible and going verse by verse, whether we're talking about some other subject, because we'll do both, these things are going to come up because the Bible holds these things high as important. These are the things that are emphasized over and over and over again. And so we should talk about them a lot because can we be honest with ourselves? We are prone to forget what's important. We are prone to put other things in first place. We are prone to get confused about the pecking order, to use a very non-theological term. We need to keep first things first. We need to understand what's important. If we would focus on the few things that the Bible holds high, much of the other things that we end up confused about and straining our energy towards accomplishing would come into place. Humility is something we should constantly pray for, but never thank God that we have. You understand that? Something we should constantly pray for and ask God for, but never thank God that we have. And why is that? Because at the point that I've decided I've arrived at humility, I'm in a bit of trouble. I don't think that's just a paradox for the sake of being cute. I think that's true. I could be more humble. I have been humbled, I promise you. (laughs) Uh, Pride has been crushed in this man standing before you. And yet, there's still more. It's little seeds, it's little leaven. It's woven itself through my heart. And so, I pray often. I ask God to come by his Holy Spirit like a light and seek even into the deep places of my heart, the places I'm not aware of, anywhere pride is hiding, and come and crush it, no matter what it costs me. I don't want it there. 
because I know a couple things. I know it's going to lead to pain for me, and I know it's going to lead to me being less effective as a vessel of glory for the God that made me. And neither of those things are acceptable. And I'm not that good always at seeing my own pride. Isn't that funny? It's hard. And so that's another reason why God gives us brothers and sisters in Christ and why we need to have the guts to lovingly say to each other, hey, that might be pride right there. And our reaction shouldn't be this visceral, uh, how dare you, and we should not showcase our pride even more when somebody comes to lovingly challenge us about the fact that that might be there. I wish that what we could have instead is an instant tendency towards self-reflection. That just because that was brought up, we would first understand that no matter what, no matter how far we get, no matter how close we get to being like Jesus, we will always have this tendency to revert back towards pride. And we should always seek its cure, which is humility. We're going to need God's help for that. I'm just, I'm telling you right now, every single message you're hearing from this culture, from media, <clears throat> all the messages around you are counter to what this Bible says, that you should think less of yourself and more of others. That's not what marketers want you to think. They want you to think that you're the best, you deserve it, because that's going to put you into a euphoric state that will cause you to buy their product. I deserve this. That's what they want you to believe. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy something. Hallelujah. But why? It's because you deserve it? Because it meets a basic need that's going to keep me moving forward on the mission God gave me. It's different, isn't it? Motives matter. So we should constantly pray for humility, but never thank God that we have it. My prayer for us is that we may be a people marked by humility. May the character and love and humility of Christ so overtake us that we prefer others with joy and there's no struggle in it. May we always enjoy the feeling of flowing with the current of God's amazing grace and never spend a day feeling the crushing weight of his opposition. And if we are to stray from the joyous and righteous path of humility, may we run quickly back to it for our good and for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We really do. Lord God, we acknowledge right now before you our sinful tendency towards pride. The Lord God, we are constantly in this struggle where we tend to believe that somehow we don't need you. That somehow we've evolved to the point where we don't need you, that we can like the man in Proverbs, trust in our wealth and imagine it on an unscalable wall. Lord, please don't let us do that. Help us to understand that all the things around us, all of the securities we build up, that these things can be crushed to dust in an instant, but that your throne is established forever, that your kingship will not be questioned, and that, Lord God, you are eternally ruler and authority over all. And so, Lord, your word and your decree, we can count on it. May we find our security and our peace and our hope in you and not in the little kingdoms that we build. Lord, if there be any pride in us, if there be any pride in us, God, I ask that you would seek it out by your Holy Spirit. I ask you would do us the great honor and the help and the service of searching our hearts and crushing and removing from us any pride that would hold us back. 
I ask you to instead replace it with the same humility, Jesus, that you had. That would cause you to leave your throne in heaven, to come and be born on this earth. Not as a king or a prince, but in the humblest of circumstances. That's the way you came. Giving us an inescapable example of what it means. And what it's going to mean to walk after you. Lord, the high point of your example of humility is at your cross when you clearly said to us that we were more important than you, though we all know that that's not true. That's the mind that you had about it. That's the way you thought about it. Somehow considered rebels and wretches and sinners. Broken people more important than you. The perfect sinless God-man. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that though you paid that price for us, and you died on that cross that you didn't stay dead. My hope is in your resurrection. The fact that I get to follow after you. Lord, may I humbly realize that all good things, every good thing comes from you. That everything I have is a gift. And anything that I control is only as a steward of what you've given me. Lord, chase pride from among us by your spirit. We need your help in this. And please give us grace to be humble. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.